Looking at uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says this. He says, I must go on boasting. Though, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Going back to, to last week, Paul's opponents had sought to undermine his authority, not only by pointing out his lack of rhetorical skills and charisma, but also by boasting of their own greatness. So Paul essentially says, okay, you want to play that game? Let's, let's have a go at it. Let me show you what, what boasting looks like. If you're going to consider me a fool, indulge me in that for just a second and watch as I expose your own foolishness. What, what Paul's doing is mockingly dressing up in the rhetorical skills of his opponents in order to expose their deception for what it truly is. Speaking as a fool in order to show the foolishness of his opponents boasting. We looked at this last week. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's what Paul's doing here. It's, it's a nauseating exercise for him. Make no mistake about it. But the, it's the only way that he knows to awaken this slumbering church. He doesn't like having to go down this road, but, but he's at his wit's end and nothing less than the gospel is at stake. Last week, we, we saw Paul respond to the boasting of his opponents in their ethnic heritage. As Paul made clear that, that he had more heritage-related street cred than anyone. Right? Conservative Jewish upbringing, check. Education at the feet of Gamaliel, the most prominent rabbi of his day, check. Zeal for the law, check. Former persecution of Christians whom he had considered apostate Jews, check. Paul carried all of the appropriate credentials, his pedigree just as impressive as his opponents, if not more. But that's not the only thing that his opponents were boasting of. Apparently, Paul's opponents were also boasting of their spiritual experiences so that Paul finds it necessary to do the very same thing. Again, answering his foolish opponents according to their folly in order to expose their foolishness. We know that just by looking at other books of the Bible, that the Apostle Paul had some pretty supernatural, incredible encounters with God, right? Going all the way back to his conversion story in Acts chapter 9, blinded on the road to Damascus by the radiant light of the risen Jesus of Nazareth. And then there was that, that night in the city of Corinth, for those of you who were around for the series through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, where Jesus spoke to Paul in a dream, saying to him in the midst of a moment of ministerial PTSD, you might say, do not be afraid, but, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I'm with you. And let's not forget the appearance of an angel in the midst of a storm at sea, Acts chapter 27, declaring, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you and those who sail with you. These are just a few examples of the, the many visions and revelations that the Apostle Paul experienced. What it must have been like to be a part of his quiet times, right? And that doesn't even take into account this experience. This one's different on the basis of the, the dating of this particular revelation that he speaks of in this morning's chapter. This is a new uh, revelation that he speaks of that doesn't get addressed elsewhere. He says this in verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It's kind of bizarre language. 
Paul, Paul will go on to make clear in verse seven that the man he's describing is none other than himself. Like Paul's so averse to boasting about personal spiritual experiences that he uses the third person to describe something that he himself encountered as if it happened to someone else other than him. The I know a man language, that's, that's Paul's attempt to distance himself from boasting in personal experiences so as not to diminish the gospel of grace. That, that Paul never wrote of this particular experience prior to this letter, that in and of itself shows something of Paul's humility. Right? We likely would have never, think about this, we would have never heard about this experience were it not for the rebellion of those false apostles in Corinth. That's mind-blowing to me because this had to be a mind-blowing experience for Paul. One that most of us would tell every single one of our friends about within a matter of seconds, right? Who's not tweeting about that? Who's not posting that on Facebook? Let me tell you what just happened to me. It's a revelation that apparently would have happened prior to Paul's first missionary journey. On the basis of how the dates add up, that'll matter in just a few minutes. I'll explain why that would have been. It's such an experience it was of ecstasy that Paul had no idea whether he was in the body or out of body. Caught up to the third heaven, he says, the place where God dwells. Caught up into paradise, the biblical terminology associated with the imagery of Eden, the garden of God. Having heard secret things, whatever that means, things that would endanger many of us, if we're honest, to boast in ourselves and our own experience. I mean, if we could just be candid for a second, many of us are tempted to boast in the Bible reading plan we finished or the book by some dead theologian we managed to complete, right? Many of us, if, if we experience what Paul experienced, would immediately acquire a publisher and get that book on the shelves as quickly as possible. And yet what we see here, Paul's response was more like the prophet Isaiah's. Isaiah chapter six, a response of reverence and humility in light of a supernatural encounter with the living God. Or like the Apostle John in Revelation 1.17, falling on his face in light of a supernatural encounter with the majesty of the risen Jesus. I mean, part of the reason for Paul's lack of publicity of this event in his life, it's that Paul understood that the vision itself was for him, not for everyone else around him. It wasn't so that he could acquire a book deal, but so that he could continue in the calling that God had on his life when things got hard, which is why the, the revelation came before his ministry truly began. John Calvin in his commentary on this morning's passage says, this thing happened for Paul's own sake. For a man who had awaiting him troubles hard enough to break a thousand hearts needed to be strengthened in a special way to keep him from giving way and to help him to per persevere undaunted. In other words, this ecstatic spiritual experience was a means of perseverance so that Paul could survive the lashes, so that he could survive the beatings with rods so that he could survive the shipwrecks and all the things that we looked at back in chapter 11. He goes on to say in verse five, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth. 
but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears in me. Again, if we could be honest, most of us are, are concerned that people will think too lowly of us. Whereas Paul was concerned that people might think too highly of him. So bizarre in our day and age where people are trying to brand themselves, right? He refuses to, to provide the, the intricate details of this vision because he doesn't want to get him, give anyone grounds to put him on a pedestal. He understands that, that the authenticity of his calling, it's unverifiable on the basis of a vision or, or a revelation. And so what does he do? He, he references that which is verifiable, his life and his teaching. He says, verse six, that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul essentially says, make your assessment, but not on the basis of visions or, or revelations or spiritual experiences that I've had. Look at my life. Does it display the gospel? Listen to my teaching. Does it declare the gospel? Paul saw no need to establish credibility on the basis of, of unverifiable visions and, and revelations when his verifiable life and teaching was in front of everyone. However, lest we think that Paul was superhuman, which is the perception of some, he goes on to say in verse seven, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, even the apostle Paul himself wasn't beyond the temptation to pridefulness or vainglory. Sin has the power to take a revelation of the living God and turn it into an opportunity for haughtiness, for self-glorification. And the apostle Paul was no exception. So that God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, we're told, in order to prevent pride from taking hold of his life. Right, we talked about this before at the beginning of the pandemic. God is sovereign over all things and that includes Satan. He's the one who ultimately ordained this thorn in the flesh, so to speak. The phrase was given me, it's what many scholars refer to as a divine passive, communicating God as the hidden agent at work. Evidence most, most beautifully God's hidden agency in the story of Esther. Many of you may remember when we walked through that sermon series. Not that we need the strength of a grammatical argument in order to make the case that God is the ultimate source of the thorn. The very purpose of the thorn was to do what? To, to prevent pride, which Satan would never seek to do, right? Satan's not trying to, to bring us from pride to a, a place of humility. This thorn was God choosing to display his amazing grace and surpassing power in both Paul's life and ministry. Can't Hughes in his commentary, he says it this way. He says, just as God was the one who was responsible for the ecstasy of Paul's rapture to the third heaven, God was also responsible for the agony of his thorn. Divine wisdom determined that the thorn was what Paul needed because without it, the apostle would have become conceited. I mean, think about this. If you've been tracking with Paul's argumentation throughout this letter, think about the irony of what Paul's saying. Paul's opponents are looking to write him off on the basis of his weaknesses as they declare the greatness of their own spiritual experiences. 
Meanwhile, those weaknesses were given to Paul by God himself in the wake of a spiritual experience that was greater than any that his opponents had known. Meaning, in other words, that the thorn was actually evidence, the weakness was actually evidence of a great encounter with the living God, giving Paul every bit of the apostolic authority that he uh, professed to have, that his opponents were pushing back on. Scholars are, are very much at odds when it comes to determining what Paul's thorn in the flesh actually was. If you're hoping to get an answer to that question this morning, I'll go ahead and say, I'm sorry up front, you're not gonna get it. And I'm gonna actually say too that that's good news. I'll show you in a minute why. Some believe the thorn to be inner psychological struggles, grief over former persecution of the church, or perhaps anguish over Israel's unbelief. Paul wrote about that in Romans 9. Others believe the thorn to be Paul's various opponents. After all, the Old Testament does describe enemies at times as thorns, a thorn in the flesh, so to speak, the equivalent to a pain in the neck. And that would certainly be in context with this letter as Paul is addressing opponents in this very section. Still others believe the thorn to be some sort of physical affliction, which we do see Paul talk about in Galatians chapter four, whether it be poor eyesight, malaria fever, epilepsy, even severe headaches, to name a, a few of the possibilities that scholars suggest. I mean, we do see Satan's agency in afflicting a Christian's body elsewhere in scripture, right? Most famously in the life of Job. Satan hoped to destroy Job, whereas God's plan through the same sequence of events was to strengthen Job. Similarly, Satan hoped to destroy the apostle Paul in the advance of the gospel, while God's plan through the same thorn was to actually sanctify Paul and continue the forward march of the gospel. The fact that we don't know with certainty what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, that's to our benefit because it actually allows for a broader application for God's children, which is exactly what we see in verse 10, right? As Paul includes weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities in the list of things with, with which we're to be content for the sake of Christ. But, but so that we don't get ahead of ourselves, look at verse eight. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, this thorn. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul didn't glory in suffering itself, inviting it into his life like some sort of masochist. He, he fervently prayed that God would remove the thorn, pleading with the Lord until he got an answer. In his case, the answer he received it wasn't unlike the answer Jesus received in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he too prayed three times that something would be removed from him, namely the cup of God's wrath that he was to drink at Mount Calvary. Like Jesus, whose cup was not taken away, Paul's thorn was not removed, though both pleaded with the Lord in prayer. Which is not to say that God didn't answer, by the way but rather to say that God answered in a different fashion on the basis of his infinite wisdom. Hear this, because I, I think this is key for us 
this morning as we interpret our own circumstances through the lens of scripture. Paul received relief not through the removal of the thorn, but by way of an increased measure of God's grace. Don't miss that. A grace that's daily sufficient in the lives of God's people. Notice that Jesus declares that his grace is sufficient. That's present tense language. Notice that he says his power is made perfect in weakness. Again, present tense language. Every morning, his grace is sufficient. Every morning, his mercies are new. Here, Paul makes clear that it's his weaknesses more so than his spiritual experiences that are worthy of his boast as they show the surpassing power of God for what it truly is. Again, quoting Kent Hughes in his commentary, he says, whenever Christ says no to our desperate, passionate pleadings, the no is freighted with his perfect, compassionate goodness and love. Just like a a parent at times saying no to a child. Paul doesn't allow his weaknesses to cause him to doubt who he is in Christ or to doubt who Christ is for that matter. He doesn't allow his weaknesses to to cause him to doubt his calling, the ministry that God has on his life. Rather, he allows his weaknesses to lead him to glory in God's grace and power, knowing that the power of Christ rests upon his people in their weakness. I think my my favorite part about this morning's passage is verse nine, where you see this language of resting upon. That, That phrase, that resting upon language, that's actually tabernacle language. Taken from Exodus chapter verse uh, chapter forty verse thirty four, it's the language of Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us. John one fourteen. That what what Paul is saying is that Jesus sets up camp with his people in their weaknesses. In contrast to the popular opinion that Jesus sets up camp with the most religiously impressive, those who seem to have it all together. We're we're meant to to make Jesus' words here the very center of our lives, the center of our boast. These words from Jesus Christ are the thesis of Paul's writing to this church across the boards, not just 2 Corinthians, but all the other letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth, which is why we see it as this recurring theme. It's why you've perhaps grown bored of the topic by now. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses three through five, Paul says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Second Corinthians one, verses eight and nine. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength, that's weakness language, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Or we've thrown this verse around as much as any in this series, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, breakable, fragile vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
Going back to last week, it's why Paul could consider his human frailties, his weaknesses, and his sufferings to be resume builders, which is so counterintuitive, so countercultural. It's because each and every one of those experiences was an opportunity for God to flex, which God loves to do for his glory. All right, Jesus frees us. He frees us from the chains of, of having to make much of ourselves and show the world that we have it all together. He frees us to boast in our weaknesses because it's there that the power of God is displayed both most clearly and most beautifully. Which is why Paul goes on to say in closing out this morning's passage, verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All these things in the list that Paul includes in verse 10 were present in his life, evidenced in the resume of sufferings we saw just a chapter ago. And he was content with those things to the degree that they gave opportunity for Christ to magnify himself in supplying the needed grace. Notice what what Paul says. It's not about simply being content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, etc. It's those things experienced, verse 10, for the sake of Christ. All of these things presenting opportunity, opportunities for God's grace to shine, for his glory to be displayed. Sam Storms in his commentary says, weakness is good because without it, we never experience the fullness of divine power. Weakness is good, he says, because without it, mercy remains a mystery. Weakness is good because it compels the soul to look beyond itself for answers, and in doing so, magnifies the sufficiency of divine grace. I mean, isn't that what brought us into the family of God in the first place? A looking beyond ourselves ourselves for answers, and in doing so, magnifying, to use Sam Storm's words, magnifying the sufficiency of divine grace in Jesus Christ. Christianity is a declarative, I can't do it. But Christ can, and he has. So that if you're not a Christian, my prayer for you is simple. It's that you would look beyond yourself for answers, that you would look to the cross of Jesus Christ I mean, going back to Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, praise be to God that the cup of his wrath was not removed from Jesus. Rather, he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that we wouldn't have to. As our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place, the sinless one sacrificed on behalf of sinners. I invite you, if you're not a Christian, to put your trust in him, to receive the sufficiency of his divine grace by faith. And if you are a Christian, let me just remind all of us that Jesus has already proven his unchanging love for us so that our circumstances should never cause us to doubt his goodness, to doubt his love. My prayer for each and every one of us as Christians is that we wouldn't miss out on on any spiritual good that might come from weaknesses, that might come from insults, that might come from hardships and persecutions and calamities, that we would 
receive that which God wants to teach us as he sustains us to the praise of his glorious grace through all things. And that going back to the very beginning of this letter, that we would leverage those things, those experiences in meeting others with the same comfort and affliction that God met us. I'll leave you this morning with a quote from John Piper, so good for my own soul. He says, the deepest need that you and I have in weakness and adversity is not quick relief, but the well-grounded confidence that what is happening to us is part of the greatest purpose in the universe, namely the glorification of the grace and power of the Son, the grace and power that bore him to the cross and kept him there until the work of love was done. That's what God is building into our lives, he says. That is the meaning of weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamity. So that I would simply close by reminding you of Paul's own words, that God's grace is sufficient for you and for me. For his power, Paul says, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, let us boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. In a moment, we get a, a chance to do some boasting in worshiping through song, to sing to this God, to praise this God who sustains us in and through all things. I, I don't know what you bring to the table this morning. I think for sure we can call COVID-19 a calamity. Can we just say that? Like we maybe struggle with where to put some uh, flesh on the bone with that word, but I think we've, we're there. So if nothing else, we can say the last few months have been hard, and we can look to God right now and sing to him and trust and acknowledge that his grace has sustained us up to this very day and it will sustain us through the rest of this day. And should we, Lord willing, wake up tomorrow, he will sustain us then too.